Hey guys, what's up? It is week 278. Let you guys know the contest for Slimy Little Bastards is still going on. All you have to do is send an um, email to davidparker1986 at live.com and put Slime SLB or contest in uh, the title and I'll enter you. I'll probably draw next week. Don't have that many entries. I'm going to put all my patrons in there as well. But this is from Toxic Fil- Toxic Filth Films or Entertainment. And uh, yeah, it, it's officially licensed. There's only 100 of them. So if you're interested, check out that website. I'm giving one away. Also, you can enter to that. Um, so I guess let's hop into the reviews. Um, and the first one up is the new Visual Vengeance title. And this is the fifth in that line. And I've been really digging what they've been doing. Uh, Wild Eye is kind of behind it. And they're doing a lot of like special editions of SOV and like cheap movies and stuff like that. Kind of low budget do-it-yourself stuff. And I dig a lot of that. Kind of similar to Saturn's Core, um, which is one of the uh, Vinegar Syndrome sub-labels. But this one is Slaughter Day. Now, it listed, it was made in 1991, and I missed this when we did 1991, and I think for good reason. Now, um, they have all these shorts on here as well, the Slaughter Day original film and all that kind of stuff, and they say they're made in the 89. I can't actually figure if the time is, is right on this one, because in the, the special features they mentioned making Slaughter Day later on or whatever. I don't know whether times are mixed up or whatnot. I'm just going to take the 91 uh, stamp on here. So this is backyard SOV stuff here, made in Hawaii. Um, it's essentially kind of an Evil Dead riff, um, but they're so young. They're, they got to be in their like late teens, and it has a lot of heart. Now, um, a heart can a heart goes a long way, but it can it doesn't save every low budget backyard movie, right? Um, and, and there's a lot of different levels of them. So in terms of like you know the camera use is SOV. In terms of the elements that are here still. They're pretty rough. In terms of some of the editing, you know, some of it's clever, uh, especially the in-camera tricks is really in- innovative and fun, very much from the Sam Raimi camp. But some of it is obviously, you know, pretty rough, especially when you can hear like the cameraman or the director calling shots off, off whatever, off camera, which is unacceptable. But hey, it is what it is. It's not that easy to edit, you know, SOV. Maybe they should have fixed that up. I don't know. They want to keep the original integrity of the movie. Uh, it is what it is, okay? But I have to call that kind of stuff out. But if you compare it to, you know, like um, uh, Nigel, the the killer, or whatever that was, one from 94, which is a backyard kind of do-it-yourself SOV, or The Hidden, um, or even Garden Tool Massacre, where these are made by, like, teenagers, this is vastly superior to any of those movies, if you ask me. It's a lot more fun, um, and it's it's kind of nonstop action. The dialogue is hilarious at times. You know, it's like two young guys screaming and just being absolutely ridiculous. And, and it does have that feel that younger people acting in much older positions and jobs than they would have and that kind of deal, you know. But uh, there's a lot of real stuff to really like here. So, so the opening is two guys that run a construction business. They go to the, the job site and somebody named John Jones, not to be confused with the the famous MMA fighter, has uh, is, is kind of gone crazy and he's attacking another person. It turns Turns out he has actually used the Necronomicon, which the subtitles call it microeconomic, which I found hilarious. That's what the subtitles refer to the Necronomicon. So whoever did those had no idea, or if it's like this kind of uh, this uh, auto-generated uh, subtitle, but it's, it's absolutely hilarious. So every time they say Necronomicon, it says microeconomic, which I was like, oh, we're getting political in here. I love that. But um, so, so like essentially after that, it's just a big run chase through. It's like this evil gas mask that gets put on and it turns people into like John Jones kind of, you know, like work for the Necronomicon and all this kind of stuff. The character of John Jones 
He's basically growling and doing this ridiculously deep voice. A lot of these kind of the actors are so young, but they're definitely putting on like a you know machismo vibe and stuff like that, which is fun. And uh, I have to give the movie props for these special effects, although they are rough around the edges. They're the perfect kind of backyard effects you would want, um, and they're very much uh, done with love and um, a lot of hard work involved. People getting sucked through the floor, broken in half, limbs being chopped off, blood spraying everywhere. Um, if you're gonna do a no budget movie like uh you know backyard movie with gores this is the kind of thing you should make and you know it's obviously in line with evil dead 2 heavy inspiration to that of course it's not as good as evil dead 2 but definitely the camera work and the fight scenes are definitely from that you know that michigan school of you know Raimi's boys um like uh there, there's parts of fight scenes here where you'll be you'll be watching the camera and they'll get on the ground and then they'll like move over and like you'll they'll catch it like a stunt or a um uh, a special effect in there too and it's just really fun like i i really enjoyed it uh it is absolutely ridiculous it's not gonna win any like technical uh you know achievements but it's definitely do it yourself in the best kind of fun way um and it, it fails sometimes obviously like i said you know the sound quality and stuff but in other times i i caught myself saying wow oh shit uh, you know especially when they use like squibs and explosions and stuff like that it's just a lot of fun and i would really recommend this to sov uh enthusiasts Enthusiast or do-it-yourself enthusiast. Um, I, I think it's really cool. Um, as far as the special features are concerned, there's a bunch of them. Uh, we have an audio commentary with Brent and Blake Cousins, the the makers of the film. One star. I think they both are in it. One's more prevalent in the film. One of the main stars. Audio commentary with Matt Delisandro. I always have a problem saying Matt's name. He's a cool guy though. And Rob Housechild, the Visual Vengeance. And then we have the Cousins Brothers today, which I really like seeing. They talk about you know their film career and all this kind of stuff and making the shorts and eventually working their way up to this one uh, alternate takes early short film full metal platoon which is fun vietnam kind of deal full metal platoon that's very funny and then slaughter day theme song then we have slaughter day two three and four on here very cool all from 89 according to this and I guess these people would probably know more than a lot of the uh, the other internet people, you know, because they put off the damn thing and whatnot. But anyways, I, I thought this was pretty tremendous for what it is. Like, and I don't mean that as an insult, you know, like for what it is, you know, what I mean, if, if you're getting yourself into these SOV low budget movies, um, then this is definitely totally up your alley. I enjoyed it. I would recommend it. Um, which is my favorite of the Visual Vengeance releases so far? Um, they've had some real fun. L.A. H. Jabber was crazy that got a release, but Necrophiles is probably my favorite if I'm if I'm not forgetting one. But uh, yeah, out of the fifth one, yeah, we're we're going strong. I love seeing these, anyways. Check out uh, Slaughter Day. Okay, this next one here is from Twilight Time, and I really should like this. This is like a really classy movie. Uh, it's like one of the classiest non-exploitation movies of all time, which is crazy, right? Like non-exploitation, you immediately think Italian sleaze. You think it's people like Sergio Garoni or, or Joe D'Amato making these trash films. And so, so when I put this one in, I was taken back at how. How I mean, not all of them are bad, okay? I'm not saying that. Like, Flava the Heretic has, like, you know, uh, big sets and stuff, and it has money. And this one, this is uh, The Nun and the Devil. And I was just kind of taken back how... Um well made it was like the cinematography the acting the set design the story i was like this is like something they would show you in school like a true story except you know there's explicit nudity and sleaze 
to a certain extent as well, so they can't really show that. But so basically, this is like this huge power struggle of these people in this convent. Um, the Mother Superior is very sick, and uh, somebody wants to take her spot, and they all have these sexual, you know, uh, feelings and, and whatnot. There's somebody sleeping with a, a man on the outside. There's somebody who has lesbian tendencies, and there's all these kind of power-hungry things going on. Luke Miranda comes in, and he's kind of, you know, trying to figure out, get to the bottom of this. And there's a really great scene towards the end of this film when it kind of sums up how disgusting, you know, the church can be, even, you know, when they're supposed to be the righteous ones. Exactly what you'd kind of expect in this kind of deal. Uh, Miranda's good in it, and Haywood's good in it. Like I said, it's just a really classy movie in comparison to its contemporaries. They, They compare this to The Devils, and I can see that. I mean, The Devils is a masterpiece, though. Uh, this is not quite there, but I can see a lot of the you know set design and stuff like that as well, and just the acting and the message and all that kind of stuff. And I think this is supposedly based on somewhat of a true story. Um, they say here the best of the sex and violence in a convent movies. I mean, like as far as like quality, it is by far one of the better ones for sure um, in terms of just objectively being a well-made film. And I, I do like my non-splitation. I, I adore Alicarda and stuff like that, but this one just had a little bit more money, a little bit more you know class behind it. Um, to get their message across, and I think it could be taken a little bit more. Some a lot of people would take it a little bit more seriously. As far as the special features are concerned, there's a slew of them. Um, we have an audio commentary with Kim Newman and Italian cinema expert Barry uh, Forshaw. Judging Luke interview with actor Luke Miranda, and you know I've never seen him in quite this kind of role. I've seen him in a couple of Polizio Tetsis or like um, he was in that. Jeez, uh, the one that uh, Hotel uh, Fear, and he played a real sleazebag in that. He's very good in that movie. And then we have The Devil and Martine interview with actress Martine uh, Brachalk. Uh, Podella Connection, profile of director and writer Domenico uh, Paradella, Honey Devils, non-splitation explained interview with film historian Marcus Stagelager, and the original trailer. So they went all out on this, and I think that the 88 films release of this shares a lot of the same, you know, um, special features and everything like that. But this is a very good-looking Blu-ray. I was very impressed with that. And uh, just taken back at how quality the actual film was in itself, The Nun and the Devil. Okay, this one here is Yellow Brick Road, the Blu-ray special edition. And I actually missed this one when it came out. What was it, 2010 or 2011? Somewhere around that time. 2010, yeah. And, and like, I heard a lot of mixed things about Yellow Brick Road. I know that the filmmakers went on to do another movie. Um, we, we, what is it? Something, I, I know I should have studied it, but I, I felt like that's their next movie, and I thought that was pretty good. So, like, when this was getting a Blu-ray release, I was, I was interested in checking out Yellow Brick Road. Um, and I can see why this movie divides the audience, honestly. People act like it's the worst thing ever, or they act like it's kind of a masterpiece. And in a lot of ways, it's really clever. It's, it's a very good way to make a movie on a budget. Um, and they had ambition, and and it shows on there, too, because they chose some crazy locations to make this, which I think bit them in the ass, uh, according to the special features and all that. But what we have here is um, years ago, which I love the setup of this, the setups of these kind of movies. I, I adore them. So it's essentially a group of uh, um filmmakers they want to make a documentary about um an entire city disappearing or a entire small town just disappeared and supposedly they went to this trail and they walked the trail and they found a couple of the bodies later on this was hundreds of years ago and but most of the people that went on the trail just disappeared it's it's like this unsolved mystery so that setup is like kind of brilliant how they do that you know it reminds me of you know something like the Blair Witch or Cannibal Holocaust you know people going in to search for something that's lost and I'm a sucker for that kind of deal so we kind of get introduced to all the characters and throughout the movie there's a nice little touch there that they always are talking about their sanity there's somebody there's like a psychologist there like a doctor and he'll ask him you know like questions so he, he can tell if their mind they're starting to lose their mind because they plan on going on this trail so in the beginning they all seem uh kind of decent you know 
normal everyday people. And as it goes on, when they find this trail eventually and they go on it, they start to lose their minds. So at first they, they wander into this movie theater and that's supposedly where the trail starts. And there's a lot of Wizard of Oz connections into this. You know, the last movie these people saw who disappeared on the original trails all Wizard of Oz. So it's not hundreds of years ago. So it was in the 30s, 30s, 40s, whatever, whatever. I exaggerated a bit. It feels like it should be colonial times when those people disappeared. I was wrong. Uh, <laughs> so, so anyways, uh, there's tons of Wizard of Oz connections in here and stuff like that. And I'm sure that I'd spot a lot more if I watched this again. So um, eventually uh, a townie decides to show them the actual trailhead and they start going on it. And uh, they start to hear these loud, weird musics, music and noises, and they're not sure where they're coming from. And it's starting to drive them crazy. They seem to be affected, seem to be drawn by it. And, and it just gets really weird and crazy from then on. And, and they start to get weirder. The people start to lose their grip on reality. kind of goes how you would expect in these deals. And you never really know 100% what happened. I'm sure that if the more you watch it, the more you have an idea. But it does seem somewhat of a loop kind of story and just strange weirdness. And this would definitely require a second viewing for me to get a full grasp of how I feel about it. Um, as far as the special features are concerned, we have... Um, Original directors, audio commentary at Andy Mitten and Jesse Holland. New special featurette, Walking the Elbick Road, Practical Blood FX, and an Indie Budget. There's a bunch of stuff. Then we have new special edition cast and crew interviews. Uh, Cassidy and Clark Freeman, their actors, executive producers, Andy Mitten, co-writer, director, Jesse Holland, co-writer, director, and Eric Hungerford, producer. And they kind of talk about their experience in making this movie and all this kind of stuff and some of the setbacks and all this stuff. So, yeah, it's an interesting movie, and it's an interesting you know special edition with this kind of stuff added in there. Now, as far as the acting is concerned, it ranges for me some of them i think are better than others um but nobody is absolutely horrendous to the point of destroying the movie but some people do stand out i think as well um actually don't want to spoil anything but one of the first people that dies i think was probably my favorite performance in the film um so there we go this is yellow brick road check it out if it sounds like it's up your alley or if you didn't know there's a special edition out there now Okay, the next one is the Patreon pick. And I had a couple of people that hadn't been drawn out so for a while, so they got pushed to the top. And this is Patri. I can't think of the last name. I apologize. Uh, lamp, lamp something. I'm terrible. Um, but yeah, this one he had wanted me to watch for a while. And to be honest, I've always wanted to watch this film. It's been on my radar for years. It is uh, 1971's Let's Scare Jessica to Death. This is a Screen Factory uh, Blu-ray. So Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Like watching this, I have to say this is definitely going to be kind of like a new favorite for me. Um... Uh, and I saw somebody comment on the letterbox review. I just said something, just a one word review. And they commented, you know, there's nothing quite like post Romero, uh, American post Romero pre Hooper horror movies. That small gap, I guess he's talking about from 1968 to 1973. And he's a hundred right. Like this one went in immediately and it had like, it reminded me of so many great movies, Carnival of Souls, Messiah of Evil and, and Night of the Living Dead. And it just had this like this weird, sad, melancholy, somber feeling that just it immediately drew me in. So we have Jessica and, and this is one of the, it's a tremendous performance in this actress. And it reminds me of the performance in The Attic, not from 1980, not as good a movie, but that performance and that of that lead, the lead in that is, is tremendous. So it's just she's just been recently released from a mental hospital and you, you obviously know she has some mental problems some you know breakdown or something of the sort she's there with a friend of hers and her husband and they're moving back i believe to uh her old her mother's or father's somebody passed away they're moving back to this house and they're gonna kind of isolated you know small town kind of deal and, and they're a little bit i guess i would say somewhat counterculture not a hundred percent they're more you know young and, and just decent people i would say and, and they go to this small town and immediately it just doesn't feel right um 
and, and like right away, like there's just so many nice little touches. Like it has like this, this, this music that's just haunting and she goes out in the cemetery and her, she's obsessed with, you know, kind of like, you know, capturing tombstones, just what's on them and all this kind of stuff like that. She's a very interesting person that seems to be haunted for a hundred percent. And like, you can see her mental, like, uh, you know, just mental stability breaking throughout the movie and at weird times, like getting very emotional and just, I legitimately felt very heartfelt here. So when they get to the house, um, they, uh, there's actually somebody already kind of like staying there and, uh, it, she's, she's like, seems really nice and everything, but looks can be deceiving and she, you know, resembles somebody in a picture in the attic. So, so it makes things more complicated. So this movie definitely plays with that idea of one's mind, um, slipping and the audience, as the audience, you don't know what is real, what is fake, um, what's supernatural, you know, and, and it just starts mixing all that stuff. Like I, I even see John Roland in this, like I see so much of other people's work and I'm not saying that this director, John Hancock stole anything. I'm just saying that it just is it's one of these movies that I, I should have seen a long time ago and I genuinely know why people love it and I, I this is totally my jam it says it feels gothic and psychological but not really at the same time it has its own weird flavor very regional which I love um, and it just has a unique look about it and I genuinely felt uncomfortable and sad the entire movie um, so there's a part where they decide to do a seance and the, uh, the, the lead here, she like, she's like, is there anyone in this house? You can see like the tears going into her eyes, like how she's so desperate to like make this connection. It's just so uncomfortable and brilliant. And, and it is kind of a vampire film in a lot of ways. You know, it's a strange vampire film. Uh, also reminds me of dead and buried, which is another great film. I would compare that directly. And it's just so weird. I don't want to spoil absolutely everything about it, but it's just so well done. So creepy genuine scares everything is set up very well and it's just got a great little uh you know story here like and the backstory too one of the scariest things in horror movies is another character telling you about a haunting or something crazy that happened and and the, you're watching the main character hear it and like you just know all this stuff's going to play into it later on and i know that you're supposed to show not tell but sometimes those stories are so effective and like uh and my favorite part in the bram stoker dracula novel which is a weird favorite part besides like the journal you know the boat the boat and stuff the boat journal it's all of a journal sorry but the the journal the boat thing the Log. that's a great part but there's a part where they like um a lot of the main characters stop at this like diner i think or this restaurant like on the or this like whatever and it's not a diner but at the time they stop at this place to eat and there's this kind of old man there and he tells them all these weird shit about you know like everything that's happened around here and it's just like this is perfect this is perfect setup for later on you know it's exposition dump to a certain extent but sometimes a well-placed exposition dump or just something to move along the story is perfect but they don't and let's scare jessica to that they don't just use that for an exposition dump it also shows how her interest in the occult and the dark is something that she is completely infatuated with and you know it kind of engulfs her at the same time and just like so much nice touches in this movie this this has a lot of subtlety in there that's just perfect and all the performances I, I thought were tremendous I thought the performances went a long way genuinely creepy well done I love the I love this movie. It's PG thirteen. I didn't know that. See, so everybody's like, you can't make it. This is a great PG thirteen movie. I, I think it was probably retroactively re rated. Of course, you know how that goes. But new audio commentary with co writer director John Hancock and producer Bill Balado. New interview with composer Orville Stober. I, I love their scene in here where they they play this song. Uh, they jam out to this song, and the guy, the husband goes and gets this big old uh, you know orchestra bass, and it's just I love that. Reminds me a little bit of the stuff in Phantasm, but this is just much more you know, haunting 
And then we have a new interview with film historian Kim Newman. And this is his favorite film. And Kim Newman is a smart man who talks a lot about movies. So if Let's Scare Jessica to Death is his favorite movie, that says quite a bit, right? New location feature at theatrical trailer, the typical stuff. I know that Imprint Films has a version of this as well, and I think Cat Ellinger's on that. I would like to get that eventually as well, but this will have to hold me over right now. Um, but love this movie. Loved it. Loved it. Definitely top tier stuff in 1971. I mean, you got The Devils. You got Bay of Blood. You have, what, Daughters of Darkness. You have some other things as well. Oh, geez, I, those are the ones that come to my head. And this one, Let's Scare Jessica. Those are the top tier ones to me in my mind. So, great stuff. Okay, let's get into those 1980 movies. They did this to you! They're trying to turn us against each other! Just look at them! What do they know about friendship, anyway? I'll get them. You watch. I'll take care of those sons of bitches. Watch it, Alan. I'm shooting. Oh, good Lord. It's... It's unbelievable. It's... It's horrible. I can't understand the reason for such cruelty. It must have something to do with some obscure sexual writer. The almost profound respect getting very careless blood in your hair what will we do you want to look pretty don't you pretty for me i can't believe you're not afraid all you have to do is piss on it could you care blood ain't you god damn it ralph get out of here go on get leave people alone You'll never come back again Shut up, Ralph. It's got a death curse. Evil. Gone, my leg. Gone, my leg. I'm here. You're here. There's a bug bank out there. Messenger of God. You're doomed if you stay here. Demanding everything, including blood. John, I want this material burned. All of it. Son of a bitch. Wendy. Stay away! Darling, light of my life. I'm not gonna hurt you. You didn't let me finish my sentence. I said, I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. I'm gonna bash him right the fuck in. <laughs> well, Dad, are you proud of me now? Do I measure up? Huh? My son, my son was a son of a bitch. And he was no good. That's it. My son is dead. I don't want to talk about him no more. Oh, Sandy, you're gonna die. Ma'am, we didn't find any boy. 
Major Suspiriorum. You know as well as I do, it takes all kinds of critters to, to make, make Farmer Vincent fritters. <laughs> I wonder who the real cannibals are. All right, now bear with me. I'm a little, I'm a little, I'm a little tired, as you can tell. A little, a little lethargic. So uh, some of these 1980 movies, I don't have copies of. They're kind of crazy, kind of rare ones. You know, like I said, I'm getting down to the nitty gritty. And the first four here, um, first four, I do not own any copies of. So that's that's kind of crazy. First five, actually. So let's get into here first. This one is more of a revenge film, is a rape revenge. It's called The Woman Avenger, and this is a Hong Kong film, if I'm not mistaken. It is not a Shaw Brothers movie though, although it feels just like a Shaw Brothers movie in, at the time. And it's very standard um, of a kung fu kind of action uh, actioneer or action outer or whatever the hell you want to call it. Action outer, I don't think it's actually a term. But uh, so so here we go. Um, we have this woman and her husband, and they're walking home. I don't remember exactly what they're doing, and they're attacked by a gang of thugs. There's like four of them. They're all, they're all masked, and they absolutely are crazy, and ridiculous. They beat the husband to death, and they you know they rape her. Now the rape's not shown a hundred percent. They show a little bit of it, but they cut back to it later on. You know how she can remember some of the things and, and like try to figure out who everyone is. Um, I think it's like a, a, a monk or some sort of, I don't know if it's a female monk, something along those lines finds her and heals her back. And she is also a martial artist. And this lady wants to obviously learn martial arts to get a revenge. Very typical Kung Fu movie, right? The, per, the bad guys did something horrible to my master, to my loved one. And now I'm hurt and I have to recover. I have to train. I have to learn these new techniques and I have to go after the bad guys. Lady Snowblood, some, you know, that's not kung fu that's japanese but you guys understand what i'm getting at here right it's a very typical kind of deal so uh she learns the kung fu she's told not to attack the guys but she must right so she goes out and she finds them one by one and she takes them out um so so basically you kind of have to look at this movie how it's done in a lot of ways do you like the style of kung fu they use i do i think that she has some really awesome kicks do you like the the bad guys do you like the hero and i think they're all pretty solid um the dubbing in this one's absolutely pretty bad it's pretty over the top at all you know these kind of movies from the time are that way um i think it's a decent movie uh, a rape revenge movie that's a little untypical you know so many of these movies there's a there's a woman victim and then like a guy goes out and gets the revenge it's nice to see a woman take the vengeance in her own hands in these movies and and that's all one of the greatest films uh, horror films is you know i spin on your grave and that, that's a big reason for that i think is because she gets the revenge i think that helps a great deal um so, so this one she gets the revenge she gets to be a badass she throws some high kicks and and whatnot and and for the most part it's a solid you know kung fu rape revenge movie and i'm glad i watched it woman avenger Okay, the next one up. Let's let's get this one done in a minute because I don't really have that much to say about it. It's Grudge of the Moon Lady. The quality version I watched was the longer version with subtitles. There is an HD version out there with no subtitles. It's been butchered. It's like 20 minutes shorter. So the problem is it's really kind of hard to make out some of the subtitles here. You know, they're cut off. They're not the best. And the movie is, is Korean, so it doesn't translate 100%. But, and from this time, it's kind of a strange oddity. You know, 1980 Korean ghost story involving, you know, Cat Lady and stuff like that. So, like, I really don't know exactly how to put this or how to say this uh, I don't recall all that much of this film and a couple of them kind of bleed together um, that happens when you're old but uh, the end of this movie is really wild so like this uh this kind of cat lady like there's a betrayal a love kind of betrayal and people like what the 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 cat lady jumps inside this other lady and uses her body to commit all these vengeance acts and everything like that. And I feel like there's some animal cruelty in this as much as the next one as well that I'll talk about. 
some cats being tossed around and everything like that and her and it's kind of crazy this one does have some visually some really cool stuff um and the end fight scene i really dug you know because like she's doing the classic kind of kung fu jumping from tree to tree fighting but i really do not have that much to add about grudge of the moon lady it's a very rare film and i wish that you know these movies would get picked up and cleaned up and have some context added to them you know i could have some readable subtitles all these kind of things like that but for the most part i thought this one was just all right um i, I feel like i could like it a lot more if i could see and read what the fuck was going on 90 percent of the time i i read about probably could read about 65 percent of it so yeah okay the next one up is devil cat aka ghost cat um made in 1980 um internet movie database says 1980 and then Letterboxd says 85. It wasn't released supposedly until 1985. And there's kind of good reason for that. The version I watched apparently is cut up and butchered. I don't know if there's a longer version available. So the movie is kind of fairly inept, to be honest. So in the very beginning, we have like a murder. This this woman kind of bricked up into a wall and it involves like this cat. It's very strange, very weird. And then we cut to these like three young school kids. And one seems to have telekinesis every time he's upset. You know, weird shit happens. People get pushed. All sorts of silly things. Cut to them being adults now, and one is a cop, one is a school teacher, and one, I don't remember exactly what the one in the wheelchair has been doing. But, uh, so essentially, um, there is a crazy murder that takes place, and there's a weird kind of story about duality and two souls in one, possibly a cat being one of the souls, an evil cat, and a weird relic from that bricked up wall. And it starts to get strange, it's kind of goofy at times, there's some familiar faces here. Um, again, I would put this in line, it, it's, it's kind of of sloppy and messy like and inept so like it's kind of hard to like wholehearted recommend this or even genuinely talk about some of these really uh incredibly obscure movies because you have no context you can barely read the subtitles and apparently this movie wasn't completed properly so i'm sitting here um talking about a barely completed movie i didn't think it was as inept as some people said but i also just like jumping around time lapses was insane you know that kind of stuff and i will mention that the actress from uh Dangerous Encounters of the First Kind is in here, so that was nice to see her pop up. And again, she's also in, you know, like three or four movies from this year, so that's crazy. Anyways, uh, you know, Devil Cat, I'm sorry I don't have more to say about it. There is some kind of cool, fun effects, and I imagine that some of these cats didn't, you know, get treated all that well when they're getting thrown around and stuff. I, I, So anybody sensitive to that stuff, I would watch out. Okay, the next one up is a Shaw Brothers flick, and this is Heaven and Hell, a.k.a. Shaolin Hellgate. And I really enjoyed this one. So this is like what, like the fourth or fifth Shaw Brothers movies I've covered for 1980 of Hex, Hexford's Witchcraft, Lost Souls. Um, there's a couple more in there, Haunted Tales. So Shaw Brothers had a handful of horror-oriented material in 1980. So Heaven and Hell, this is a crazy movie. It has Fu Shang in there, uh, who died very young, and some other familiar faces. You know, I think some of the five Venoms are in there. And if I'm not mistaken, I think this is the same director as Crippled Avengers. Um, so, so correct me if I'm wrong. And, and like, so this one is, is actually really well done. This is a really fun, wild movie. And we see Earth, we see Heaven, we see Hell. We have three different worlds here. Uh, yeah, it, it does seem very um, uh, vignette kind uh, kind of at times because it'll do like the Oz thing where it'll introduce a character and sometimes you go through their backstory and see why they're there. So in the beginning, we have these uh, two people that are in love in Heaven and they broke this rule and they're banished to Earth, um, you know, from to Earth. One of the people... 
essentially kind of defends them and lets them escape to Earth is what he does. And they banish him to Earth. And he's kind of reincarnated as this taxi driver. Then one day, this couple, well, Fu Shang, is the, the male in there. And I don't know when he died, if it was around this time or not, if this one had to have any change-ups or anything like that. I know I can't. this isn't the movie where he died while well, the making of, but still. So they're probably making like eight movies at the time, at, at one at one point in, a, in the Shaw Brothers catalog. So essentially what happens is he gets killed defending these people against a couple of thugs and we see what hell is like and hell is follows these crazy rules and it's 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 insane that the idea even if you have money you're better off in hell and they just treat even the poor people even worse in hell it's just very funny they're obviously making a statement on greed and capitalism and all that kind of stuff in in hell as well so our main character gets put in hell and he doesn't feel like he just uh, justly deserves to be there he ends up finding a friend in uh the lead actress from dangerous encounters of the first kind who she she basically has her backstory and these two are going to try to find some way out of hell um it turns out that buddha comes down once once every one once in a great while and he basically you know takes pity on someone that he believes possibly doesn't belong there and he punts him to the front of the line to be reincarnated so basically buddha says hey i'm going to give you four or is it five? Uh, four uh, people in hell that I don't think belong here because um, they had messed up circumstances and they were kind of cheated, although they're bad or they did something bad. They don't really deserve to be in hell. So we introduce all these characters. Some of them are very familiar martial art guys in, in these movies. And we see all their backstories and they all take place in different times and, and we see how they died and everything like that. And now... All these get people, this group of this ragtag group of people has to fight their way out of hell against their enemies that were their enemies on earth and demons and all this kind of stuff in hell. And you see people being tortured and all sorts of weird stuff and long tongues and people on stilts and pig face guys. It's a lot of fun. It's a fantasy film, but, you know, it does have, like, torture and craziness and a cool rendition of Hell, Shaw Brothers, Hell, which I really enjoyed this one. I think this is really cool stuff. It's Heaven and Hell, a.k.a. Shaw and Hellgate. There is a DVD, I think, floating around. I would recommend checking this out. I hope that Arrow or 88 Films put this one out because this is a good one. This is a, a really fun uh, Shaw Brothers flick, and it's probably my favorite Shaw Brothers flick this year besides, um, as far as horror is concerned, besides Lost Souls. So check it out, uh, Heaven and Hell. Okay, the next one is from Severn Films. This is from 1980, and this is a rare Indonesian cannibal flick. Um, jumping on that Italian bandwagon, this is Primitives, a.k.a. Savage Tear. Now, I'll be very brief with this one, kind of my M.O. This, this week, right? Because I've already covered this one before, and, you know, I said some decent things about it, but rewatching Primitives... The first thing that took me back, you know, like I, I'm used to the the animal cruelty and stuff like that, and I don't defend it, but I'm not going to shut a movie off because of it. An old movie, I would probably shut a new movie off because of it, but an old movie. Um, so so watching this, I was just taking it back. I was like, man, this one is is going for like the most animals it can kill in one movie because it is ex- explicit and it's it's an excess here. Like I mean, excess. There's so much animal killing, lots of different things too. You know, animals eating animals. Like there's scenes of like jaguars or, or wild cats being eaten by crocodiles and i don't know if that's footage that they added in but essentially it's the plot of cannibal ferox even though it's a year before we have people going into the jungle that want to study this kind of deal they have a guide they pay their guide more to go deeper and of course they run into crazy cannibals and they start to be picked off one by one either through traps either through cannibalism the dubbing is uh, uh, you know 
unintentionally hilarious. There's this kind of like nerdy character in there. It hits a lot of the beats that we've seen in other better cannibal films like, you know, Jungle Holocaust or Eaten Alive or Cannibal Holocaust. You know, it doesn't compare, you know, to any of those in, in quality. Now, you know, Cannibal Holocaust is the same kind of vein. They're going to make a documentary and they're, they're kind of doing the same thing. But I feel like this is more aligned with something like Cannibal Ferox because you have the naive young people. We're going to, we're going to, we're teaching, we're going to be intelligent and go and study all this shit. And then they end up getting hacked to pieces and, and all these kind of traps and everything like that. It's okay. If you're a fan of the cannibal genre, you know, this one is definitely worth seeking out um, because it's it's a rare Indonesian kind of cannibal flick in the, in the style of an Italian cannibal flick. It made the video nasties list, either the section one or two, and rightfully so. Like, the animal killings are pretty brutal in here. There's gore and stuff like that, but really what does it is the animal killings. There's a part where they they ride this guy like they don't they like get on top of him ride him like an animal there is a you know there's an orangutan killed in this but they actually it's clearly not killed for real i mean like i think that would be crossing the line in general like for even for this movie for any of those movies but uh primitives um there is special features on here if you want a more in-depth review you could probably go back and watch the old one so we have a uh, producing primitives interview with producer gope t samatani way down to the jungle interview with screenwriter imim tatoni and then we have alternate title sequence a bizarre mix of ooga booga and cruelty a weird cannibal movie with truly fantastic and fun elements it's not surprising it was seized by the uk police yeah no shit weird ass movie primitives okay uh up next is kind of one of the heavy hitters of 1980, and this is Joe D'Amato's Anthropophagus, a.k.a. the Grim Reaper. And, you know, I've covered this before. Uh, as you can tell, the picture on my channel is obviously a riff on George Eastman eating his own guts uh, from Anthropophagus. So to say that uh, I'm a fan, you know, is I, I wouldn't say it's an understatement. I am, I am a pretty big fan, but I'm a more a fan of George Eastman, and I am more a fan of the two show-stopping scenes in Anthropophagus. Uh, my buddy Moods always says Anthropophagus is a mood piece. You know, he'll put it in one day and he won't be digging it, and the other next day he'll love it. So this time around, I really was digging Anthropophagus. So this one, it grows on you. It takes place on a Greek island and essentially... Very similar to zombie, right? These this group of like tourists, they're gonna do island hopping. They meet a um, this young girl Tisa Ferro, who had a short-lived career in Italian films. You know, I believe she's in The Last Hunter this year. She's in Anthropophagus this year. She's she's in Zombie Holocaust, if I'm not mistaken, and she's in Zombie the year before. I think she also in Fingers, um, James Tolback movie. So like, and I name all Tisa Ferro's movies. It's funny, I've seen more Tisa Ferro movies than Mia Ferro movies because I like my trash cinema. So, anyways, uh, they're doing these boat hopping. This woman's like, well, I, I gotta go to this island. And do you mind if I hit your ride? They agree. And uh, essentially what happens is there's not very many inhabitants on the silent rise. Me, who can kill a child? They show up. And there's no adults. There's nobody around except a couple, you know, very rarely a couple people. And uh, what, what's walking around this island is George Eastman, the Grim Reaper, Anthropophagus. You know, he, he's wandering around and he is in this gnarly makeup. You guys know that George Eastman was a screenwriter on this too. Um, he's six foot fucking eight, six, nine. He's a big boy. So he's perfect to play the monster. And uh, he starts to pick people off one by one until we get to these two amazing showstoppers the the one uh, the cover scene there is just a brilliant scene and i can't be helped but reminded of the story i heard of gorilla crickets uh you know accidentally having their innards cut out and them eating their own innards it's like that kind of deal but at the end here it's like george eastman does what he does out of spite 
and I love it. Like he's just like, just it's perfect. It's one of the best shots of 1980. And there's also a really nasty, um, you know, scene in a cave. I'm sure people know it, but uh, this one does have a solid atmosphere. It has some weird wonky music that fits it. And Joe Diamato is a cinematographer and director, so like the cinematography is very solid for the budget. And like there's genuinely some really creepy shit going on. Like there's a storm going on, and this guy says, "I'm gonna leave and lock the door. I'll be right back." And he closes the door. And, the, and he leaves her and the lightning strikes and, and George Eastman was standing behind the door and that's the first time you see him like 40 minutes in the first time you get a great look at him and it's a really great reveal it's really top notch stuff now this movie is a bit too slow for a lot of people it, it's kind of inept in places in terms of how people act they're not exactly the most logical intelligent people but and we start doing that when when do we start expecting slasher victims to be logical but sometimes it gets a little bit really ridiculous here it's like my pregnant wife just broke her ankle yeah I'm going to go forward instead of staying with her i mean they did leave somebody with her on the boat but still it's just like come on man stay there with your freaking wife that's not illogical that's just a dickhead thing to do so so yeah a lot of the people just act silly and goofy but it is what it is the the kills are really graphic really crazy really wild and, and there's some genuinely good atmosphere in this one anthropophagus is a cool film for sure long live george eastman long live joe diamato and uh as far as special features are concerned we have don't fear the man eater interview with writer star luigi Montafiri, aka george eastman the man who killed Anthropophagus interview with actor Salvero Valoni, Cannibal Frenzy interview with FX artist uh, Pietro Tingalagino, uh, uh, Gelagi, I can't do that one, brother and sister in editing, interview with editor Bruno Michia, um, Inside Zora's Mouth, interview with actress Zora Canorva, who I should mention, she's also in Cannibal Ferox, she's in a slow movie, so she's definitely a known kind of entity as well. Like I said, we got Eastman, we got Tisa Farrow, we got uh, Zora, so we so we have some some familiar faces in here, and it's a solid, um, if you're watching 1980 Horflix, you have to watch Anthropophagus, you know, it's kind of a must watch. Could, could, don't know, could very well make my top 25, I do not know yet, I have it not looked at the list and thought there's just too many movies I love from 1980 and I just can't make I can't promise a spot for Anthropophagus that's tough that's tough right I I, I have the freaking cover of my channel as a riff on the movie and I might not even have my top 25 that's how good 1980 is guys I'm gonna have to apologize in the title here Delito uh what is it here uh Delito in Via Telada uh yeah I'm sure there's a translation to that this is an Italian TV movie I believe and it's directed by Aldo Lotto who, who did stuff like Who Saw or Die and uh, Night of the Short Glass Dolls, is that one? But Who Saw or Die is a great movie. Adelato does pretty solid work, of course. So I wanted to check out his movie. And the first thing I noticed is um, the score is by Fabio Frizzi. I was like, I love Fabio Frizzi in the same year as City of Living Dead. Then I was like, wait a minute, this is just a City of Living Dead score. This is literally verbatim. Nine, like 50 to 60% of the score is verbatim City of the Living Dead by Fabio Frizzi, which cracked me up. Um, sometimes it doesn't fit. There's other cues, I think, that aren't used as, as much in City of the Living Dead, or maybe they're new cues for this or from something else that I think do work. But it is a Fabio Frizzi score, so hey, that's a plus. It, it sounds really cool. So essentially, this is this is kind of a wild movie. It's like they're like on a, a, a TV station or something. They're making all this different like kind of material, and, and somebody finds a dead body, right? They find a dead body, and they go to tell everyone, and the body disappears. No one believes them. Um, but this person uh, kind of convinces a group of uh, the friends and everything to look around and start kind of like doing suspects and everything. And it turns out there was a dead body, and there'll be more very soon, including these friends that look into it. And people start getting picked off here and there. 
and uh, more characters kind of enter the picture and everything like that. It's very fast-paced. It's very well done for what it is. I really enjoyed it. It's a giallo. You know, the black gloves, the kills are decent. They're not super, super effective, but it has sleaze and nudity, too. And, and TV, I guess, that really is, uh, you know, different for Italy at the time. We wouldn't have that here. I don't know. Maybe it's like an equivalent to an HBO or something. But I really enjoyed this. I thought this was much better than expected, well-directed, um, well-acted. And the end reveal was, was satisfying enough. I genuinely was interested in the killer's motives although they are kind of, you know, that of the crazy kind of persuasion, which a lot of killers do have that. You know, like you talk about the giallo killer motives. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's your insanity or mental illness. And other times it's a mixture of all of them, right? Or you're covering up a kill to cover up a kill, you know, and that's kind of here too. But there's a mental illness thing going on as well. But regardless, I really enjoyed this one. This is a DTO, uh, what is it? Uh, D, uh, Via Del Tolamanda, <laughs> but like, I'm sorry, guys. You know, I'm not Italian, obviously. Very, very obvious. Okay, the last one from 1980. Yeah, this is kind of crazy, right? Another TV movie, and this is The Legend of Sleepy Hollow with Jeff Goldblum, Meg Foster, Dick Buckus. Gotta love Dick Buckus, right? Also from Deadly Games from 82. But this was a childhood favorite of mine. This is the TV version of Legend of Sleepy Hollow. I mean, perfectly cast. Ichabod Crane, Jeff Goldblum, 28-year-old Jeff Goldblum. Perfect, perfect for Ichabod Crane, right? So if you guys don't know, the classic Washington Irving story of, you know, the the headless Prussian. Um, so it's uh, New York City. City, we have Ichabod Crane moves in and he's a school teacher. He's single. He moves into this town and like this this does change things from the book. But all the school teachers here have kind of went crazy because ghosts, because the headless horseman, or they've been run out of town, stuff like that. Obviously by Bomb Brom Bones, played by Dick Buckus, very well cast as well. But almost immediately, um, Ichabod Crane has his eyes set on Von Tassel, who also Brom Bones has his eyes set on. Well, a couple of the other people in the town, you know, Katrina's... Van Tassel's father wants her married and the other one of, uh, you know, Jeff Goldblum, the guy who got him his job, has a daughter who wants to marry Brown Ball. It gets really kind of weird, confusing in that kind of aspect, right? So um, they did change a lot of things, you know, in the original story, Ichabod Crane has run out of town, from my understanding, from my memory, and he never comes back and, and you know, Brown, Brown Bones gets, you know, his woman he wants. They change this around. They add the elements of, you know, uh, old school teacher kind of being a ghostly presence and they add um, uh, definitely a supernatural occurrence in here which i enjoyed but uh this just like after watching all the stuff in 1980 you know the brutality the murder the rape the gore the real animal killings and stuff it was really kind of pleasant to put in legend of sleepy hollow and have that connection to my childhood and have that light-hearted good-natured tv kind of 1980 stuff with a with a well-done cast and just a classic kind of spooky little story here um dick buckus as mean as he tries to be in this he's just so charming and funny like i can't be like he's got this perfect Chicago accent this and like I just like him. he's just funny he's entertaining he's got screen presence he's not he's not like an Academy Award winning actor but he's perfect for Brown Bones he's perfect for a Brown Bones TV movie if that makes any sense like to to watch with your family but it's just a cute little fun movie that I don't think is gonna uh, bother too many people I don't know how many people will like it like I do but I have a special place in my heart for the legend of Sleepy Hollow you know and uh, I enjoy this and, and I like Goldblum I like Meg Foster and I like Dick Buckus I like the cast everybody in here is fun and having fun and you can tell it's just a cute little movie right it's legend of sleepy hollow I, I would like this to get a nice release i don't know if it has a decent release i think it's always been public domain or crappy looking things it's on youtube it's my vhs but legend of sleepy hollow i do enjoy it and kind of a weird turn for 1980 for sure right what i'm watching you gotta you gotta watch all these cannibal movies that i enjoy a lot of them and then i'll pop in legend of sleepy hollow see i like all horror movies 
I like the kiddie stuff, uh, you know, growing up. I like, you know, the crazy stuff, the extreme stuff. I like the mainstream stuff. I like everything. Like, I, I like it all. Gary Coleman and Steve Allen host a Halloween classic, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Has anyone in here actually ever seen a ghost? The local school teacher doesn't believe in ghosts until... It was a headless horseman. Did you see him? A world premiere Halloween, Friday on NBC. All right, we're here for uh, Blind Spot. I think this is just one you picked. I don't think you had seen it before. No, I've seen it. I saw oh. it in theaters. So it's—I guess you ain't seen. You, yeah, and you're making you me watch seen. it. It's a uh, Sinbad and the Seven Seas, right? Something like that. Okay, so this is an animated movie from 2003, and it stars the voice talents of Michelle Pfeiffer, um, Brad Pitt, Joseph Fiennes, and who is the other actress in this? Catherine Zeta-Jones. Jones, yeah. So it's like the big four people in the film. And I Frank love Walker. Uh, yeah, Frank Walker's a classic voice actor. He <laughs> does everything. But, uh, yeah, I, I like the stories of Sinbad, you know, the uh, the, the stop-motion ones, the Harry House mm. and stuff. So, yeah, this is just a fun adventure movie. I think that Brad Pitt is really fun in it. I think he voices well. And, of course, Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle so Pfeiffer. I'm going to let you take this over. I don't have very much to say about it. Oh, oh um, well, so this is a story of about Sinbad and one of his many stories, except it's not because it's actually based off of a Greek myth and um, Sinbad is like Arabic in origin and also all of Sinbad's stories take place in like the Indian Ocean, like, you know. And so they take this character and they plop him down into the Mediterranean and they say, hey, let's do some Greek stuff and They're Roman basically stuff. like, remember how good Ulysses the story was, or Odysseus, or the mm-hmm. Odyssey, whichever one you want to call it, uh, Roman versus Greek, right, of course. Whichever, yeah. but they're the same story. They're both great stories. So basically, there's even that, with the sirens is in here and all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, so, the, you know, they have elements from different Greek stories. Um, ironically enough that you bring up um, the Odyssey is that, you know, the plot of this movie is Sinbad has so many days to prove his innocence otherwise yeah. his friend gets executed in his place so the voyage is going to tartarus to you know show down with Eris, voiced by michelle pfeiffer and get his she's fun too she's oh, like she, oh she's god fantastic. of chaos right yeah yeah the goddess of chaos um you know the, the show you know had the like like the climactic battle and of course it fails and, but unlike the Odyssey, the Odyssey is a story about returning home from the mission. This movie just cuts to where Sinbad's walking home. I, like it, that part always kind of like it bothered me because it's it, like the scene ends with him and uh, the girl's name is Marina, yeah, voiced by uh, Zeta Jones. Um, we're standing in Tartarus and they're all sad because you know Sinbad failed the test. And then the very next scene, like Sinbad's like in. Um, Oh, yeah, he doesn't have an adventure back home. Yeah, 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 he, he just, like, walks up the castle wall. He's like, I'm here for my execution, guys. I was like, how, how'd you get back? Like, what? Like, how, how'd you get across that They made that an floating? executive decision where they just didn't want 30 minutes. <laughs> right, exactly. There's a lot of weird characters, like side characters, mm-hmm. the pirate people. Uh, who's right. his main guy? is. Uh, oh, his main guy is Dennis Haysbert, plays the boys. Yeah. From, you know, from all state commercials and, of course, what was the... Uh, the uh, um, Suture, which is a really good movie, and Navy Seals, good actor, very memorable voice. I think everybody knows his voice, and um, I think uh, there's a couple other familiar kind of like character types in this, like his pirates. The one thing I would complain about, so I'm u- so used to like the Odyssey, where like the, a lot of the like crew dies. Mm-hmm. It is a fun movie. 
there's just not many stakes, but that's it's a it's a you know it's a Pixar or Dream DreamWorks DreamWorks. Yeah, it's a DreamWorks. So you don't yeah. really expect to see any hardcore violence or people die. The one complaint is this is kind of like the time when they started ditching some of the animation and using more computer generated effects, and some of those computer generated effects do not look very good, and they just see they're really rough on the eyes. Like watching them is just a little unpleasant to be honest. Like the I think like the ships looked okay, um, but re- really like when it comes to, like the giant monsters, they look like shit. Yeah, you know, they they just look very much out of place. Um, like like the movie itself is like nonstop action. Um, and, and really, it's scene after scene and of just various set pieces, like 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 fighting the giant squid, <laughs> um, like catapulting up a mountain and like sliding back down it. Yeah. I mean, er- everything is. It's an adventure movie. It, a high it, it is a, a high seas adventure movie, um, and I, I don't know, like like animation wise, I think it's it's fantastic. It's one of the last, you know, hand drawn animated features like we would get in for probably 10 years and it, or so. and it bankrupt this company right so it didn't necessarily bankrupt the company um so this came out like oh three and this oh what's what's the bloke's name is it katzenberg yeah um yeah so the guy that was at disney you who told then, his last story basically yeah, yeah yeah so he so he he left disney and, and he stole all their precious documents it's like okay i know they're going to make bugs life so i gotta make ants i i know they're going to make you know treasure planet so i gotta make sinbad like you, you know so he so he well, had all you know their... what happened to him right no what happened the uh the uh disney uh police raided his um mansion looking for them documents Oh, this is a joke. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) it's not a good joke. Well, I I never knew why he left. I, 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 like, (laughs) he stole all the Disney documents. He did steal all the Disney documents. (laughs) He's like, he's literally like open, looking through a picture of how to draw Mickey Mouse, and he's just like drawing three circles. (laughs) Like he's like, I see it is simple. (laughs) It's just Felix the Cat. Um, He's like, how to draw Mickey, and he pulls it out. It's Garfield. He's like, fuck. (laughs) So, um, so yeah, like, like the running joke is that DreamWorks was always like whatever big movie Disney was going to make because Disney announces their movies and then takes two years to release and DreamWorks would like weasel in with their little knockoff version like three months before. I liked Ants though. Oh yeah, I, I thought Ants was fantastic. I think a lot of DreamWorks was fantastic. But, I mean, so DreamWorks, they, they did um, for their hand-drawn the, the animated department. Um, you know, they, did, <laughs> they did like Prince of Egypt. They did um, Road to El Dorado and like like those were really big hits and then so when they made Sinbad and Sinbad just kinda... I don't know why I feel I guess like people don't like I see adventures I, well, boats that, are hard man and th- and that's the thing like like pirate cinema <laughs> like Sorry. like while it was always at, at like the peak of like popularity like it very much waned in like like the nineties then we had Pirates of the Caribbean and people a- went and Pirates bonkers. of the Caribbean came out like literally well, a week after this movie did so oh, why what are you going to go know, see like, are you going to see Sinbad are you going to see Johnny Depp and, and Cutthroat Island was one in the nineties that was not very well regarded and there was rob roy was a pirate one was a buccaneer one there's oh, a yeah. there was a, a, a slew of them you know yeah I, but they've always been kind of or they just didn't do very well you know compared to what they used to do well, you know yeah. 50 years prior um so yeah so this movie it didn't like necessarily bankrupt the company but it was like okay we can't no afford more sinbad. No, no more sinbad no more hand-drawn animation and then they released shrek and they made you know a lot of all money. their money back, all their and money, and then some. And now, now you get a DreamWorks movie every forty-five minutes. And Mike Myers continued to live off someone else's yeah, exactly. characters that he stole. <laughs> Which <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I like like Katzenberg probably stole that script from Disney too. Like 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 DreamWorks is. Eh. He's like looking through the files. Says Chris 
Farley Ogre, right, uh, exactly. ogre uh, vehicle. <laughs> He's like, I'll take this, put Mike Myers in it. Um, so, so yeah, I enjoyed it. I'd give it a three and a half out of five. I don't have much just. I don't dislike it. It's just that those things hold it back a little bit. Yeah, yeah. The the, the computer animation, I think, does hold it back a little bit. Dates it in a weird way, too. It does date it. Um, you, you know, but, like, the characters, I think, are all fantastic. I love the story. Um, Michelle Pfeiffer is having the time of her life playing her character. She's a good villain, too, because she's, like, the one where she's, like, evil about it. But then she's like, all right, who cares? It yeah, was yeah, fun exa- while it lasted. Exactly. She's like, ah, I don't care. I'm just going to do something Very else chaotic. Now. Reminds me of, you know, a very much a Thor villain. Um, some of the Thor villains. Yeah. Loki on a less evil level, or uh, who is the, uh, the Enchantress is more like it. Yeah. Somebody like that. I mean, if anybody's read the comic books, those kind of characters R- like that. Right, and Michelle Pfeiffer's just delivering her lines how she normally speaks. I mean, she just sounds like Selena Kyle. Michelle Pfeiffer's awesome. I, I adore Michelle Pfeiffer. She's one of my favorites, and every time I see her in a movie, so I just you, get kind of giddy. Three and a half, then? Four? I'd give it like a, like a four. Okay. Yeah. Um... So what are we doing next week? My pick, right? Yeah, I guess it's your pick. I'm going to let you pick between two Mario Bava movies. The Bay- Mario Brothers? No. May, uh, Bay of Blood. I almost said May of Blood because I was saying Mario. Bay of Blood. Bay of Blood. Which is 1971. Some people consider it the first kind of slasher-oriented movie. It's very fun. It's very playful. There's a lot of deaths in it. It takes place and like uh, you know on like uh, kind of by off the lake and stuff. It's really cool. Gory. I haven't seen it in a very long time. Or Blood and Black Lace, which some people think is one of the early Jolly, and it's one of... They're both two of his best movies. I think I'm going to do Blood and Black Lace. Okay, that has Cameron Mitchell in it. I don't know what a Cameron Mitchell is. You're a disgusting human being, and I'm appalled, shocked and appalled. Who's Cameron Mitchell? He's in Toolbox Murders. He's in Without Warning. He's in a million fucking movies. He's in The Offspring, a.k.a. From a Whisper to a Scream. It's Cameron fucking Mitchell, man. He's a... He's, he's a, he was a classic actor that ended up in a lot of really crappy movies that I absolutely love and I don't think are crappy. Well, if he's so great, how come I've never heard of him? Jeremy, you don't know you didn't know who Al Pacino was until like two years ago. I still technically don't know Al who Al Pacino is not a real person. <laughs> <laughs> We're done. All right, fine. We'll see you guys next week. All right, let's get in these questions, comments. I have bubble wrap under there that I keep popping. Sorry. Questions, comments, concerns, all that good stuff. So... Chris Kobe, what happened to Moods? Now, Moods goes on vacation every summer. So he's never around summer. 22 shots doesn't happen. So Moods is doing his own thing almost every summer until like the end of September, mid-September. Ken Coakley, Night Riders is my favorite Romero film outside the dead universe. I rented it in 1982. Expected to be a gore fest and was pleasantly surprised. Donald Rubinson's song at the end was so haunting as, as was Tom Savini's face when he became the king. When I met Joe Pilato, we talked about his scene with Ed Harris, which was my favorite scene in the film. Pilato said that they got along so well it was hard for them to yell at each other. Brother Blue, who played Merlin, moved here to Massachusetts to teach literature at Harvard and did poetry readings. I went to Boston with a friend of New York um, for New Year's Eve 1991, and Brother Blue was doing a poetry show for free, and I wanted to go, but my friend nixed it, even though they knew each other. I'm also glad you caught the Jurassic Park actor Martin uh, Fre- uh, Ferrino as uh, Botempi, which means good time. And I love the Native American that guided Billy. He looked just like a friend of mine from the heavy metal days. I have reason to believe that the guy who created Sons of Anarchy is a fan of the film uh, as well because the series ended identical to Knight Riders. I bet, I bet. As a person who with Asperger's, I like to do impressions and learn how to do Marlon Brando through Harold Jones, the crazies. Very cool. Um, so, Irish Mad Dog 1987. I missed the question last week. My favorite horror film of the year so far is Resurrection, directed by Andrew Siemens, starring Rebecca Hall and Tim Roth, who both give amazing performances and insane gaslighting story about psychological abuse. Definitely the most fucked up ending of the year. Definitely a must watch. Nick Mua. While screenwriting, directing, uh, score are highly important to any film, good casting can make or break your film. 
I basically asked last week any movie that you think would be better if you changed the cast and give me the cast and who you replace and stuff. So I believe the mummy tomb of dragon emperor would have worked better if Rachel Weiss had reprised her role from the previous movies. The guy who played Brandon Fraser adult son didn't win me over either questions. What is your favorite non horror Cronenberg film? Um, as far as his non-horror output, I haven't seen all that many. I've never saw History of Violence or Eastern Promises. Um, Crimes of the Future, the original 1970, is that horror? Is Naked Lunch horror? Uh, his movies are borderline, a lot of them. I would probably say Naked Lunch isn't a horror film. So it's probably my favorite by default. Maybe Dead Ringers isn't a horror film. It depends. I keep putting my knee up in here with my short. I'm sorry, I, I always sit. You know, crisscross. That's just how I always said. Please name some good possession movies. Um, it depends what kind of possession movies you're looking for. If you're looking for Exorcist style possession movies, The Exorcist is the best. It's the cream of the crop. A lot of people like Exorcism, Emily Rose. It's not my deal. But if you're talking about a lot of actual like weird kind of style possession movies, like Demons, where people are or Evil Dead, I love those kind of movies. Or even Demon Knight, or you know, Night of the Demons. Those are kind of my kind of possession movies where they become violent monsters that run around. You know, not just typically tied to a bed because the Exorcist did that better than any movie ever could so so my kind of possession movies are those kind of deals but i mean there's stuff like the resurrected which is a cool movie or yeah from 1987 where the guy he's kind of possessed by another person and there's all sorts of different kind of possession movies i would really have to go in depth if you really want to look at some you know kind of possession movies you forget or possession movies i would recommend checking out the podcast of you know house of salmons um they did a possession episode where they talk about their top favorite possession movies and there's a lot of different ones in there that you wouldn't expect to hear and they do a good job check that podcast out it's very good house of salmons um where are we at here and he says would you kill mrs Voorhees to save your life if you're trying to kill me and you're not like the love of my life i'm going to kill you if i can period <laughs> of course if she was trying to kill me i would i would check for i would chop her head off take care and i hope the sales figures of slimy little bastards skyrocket um i already got my money so hopefully it does for uh you know jason um who runs Toxic Filth? RB. I think Nicholas Cage would be an excellent Freddy Krueger. Not a replacement to Robert England, but of course, but over Haley. Great question, but so hard to answer. Ken Coakley. When Batman was coming out in 89, I was still one of the millions against Michael Keaton being cast as Bruce Wayne. Batman. Now in 2022, I stand by that. Michael Keaton looked like a guy who waited a really long time to get his revenge. Keaton was 37 when he shot Batman, and he looked 47. Am I supposed to believe that he put it off for 15 years? Mel Gibson was offered, but had to do Lethal Weapon 2. Alec Baldwin was offered, but declined. So Batman is a scrawny guy with receding hairline. Keaton almost didn't do Batman Returns, and Tom Hanks was waiting in the wings. Burton also also was going to direct a Superman movie with Nicolas Cage as Superman. I saw the test footage. He looked ridiculous. Then he was going to cast Chris Rock as Jimmy Olsen. I was, however, sold in Robert Pattinson in The Batman. I'm a Batman fanboy who petitioned for Christian Bale to do Batman after seeing him in Shaft and American Psycho. He's my favorite Batman. Super imposing. Uh, so superimpose him in the 1998 Batman in the film was perfection. Yeah, I, I love Michael Keaton. I, I just like Michael Keaton. I, I When I saw those movies, you know, I don't have, an, I didn't really have an opinion who's a good Batman. You know, I don't have, I didn't have like the knowledge of Batman comics or, or so much so because I was only like four, you know. But I just liked Michael Keaton. I understand though what you're saying. Skip Barber, Slimy Little Bastards is a good reason you should continue directing films. Maybe, never know. Retro horror, great stuff. I was curious how you saw Haunted Tales. Can't find it. I'll, I'll help you out there. D. Gulag, always great. James D. Coax, The Fear. I hate everyone in that film. And he also says, and I think All American Murder would have been better without Charlie Slatter. It felt Christopher Walken had the... And, had to tone himself down when they were on screen together. Uh, John Soloway, Demon Knight, Jada Pickett, replace her with Jennifer Jason Lee. I think if you replace 
Jenner, if you put Jenner for Jason Lee in any movie, it makes it better. So, um, I, I like Jada Pickett in that though. And he says, "Death Proof." Every female except Vanessa Ferlato and Rosario Dawson. Don't care who you replace them with, just as long as they don't sound like Zoe Bell, Tracy Toms, and uh, Sydney uh, Poitier. Aaron Mazzola, The Mothman Prophecies. I'd replace Richard Gere with any other actor on the planet. Jamal Potter, a very obvious with Bram Stoker's Dracula. Take out Keanu Reeves, put in Johnny Depp. Bam, fixed. Peter England says a young Brad Pitt should have been the Schofield kid in Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. I think that's a great choice. Um, Skip Barber, Truman Capote wrote Breakfast at Tiffany's as a vehicle for his friend Marilyn Monroe. I think she would indeed have been more believable than Audrey Hepburn in that part. Christopher Webb, question too complicated. Cannot compute. Ian Ir- Ir- uh Here's a, put Jennifer Connelly and Sofia Coppola, Coppola uh, sorry, I'm very tired, in the Sofia Coppola role in Godfather Part 3. Also find a way to bring back Robert Duvall and cut out George Hamilton. Peter England, Ian Ara, Irza, he's mentioning this to him. There was an original story with Tom Hagen as the nemesis and Michael Corleone. I agree with you on that one. But still, even if you would replace Sofia after all these years, I don't think it really... Uh, it's really her performance with the actual script, which was so horrendous. It would still be bad because it has so many ridiculous flaws. Even the new version is not that good. The only great scenes with are with Andy Garcia, including excluding the stupid insistuous scenes with Sofia, and some great scenes in Sicily and Italy and in the Vatican. The Costa Natura boss with those glasses and those two Sicilian hitmen. Robert Mazzola watched 10 minutes of House of Gucci and the casting was completely off. Replaced La Gaga with Weird Al and we'd be all set. Okay. Travis Tiro, one that I agreed with, Roger Ebert on, was The Raven. Replaced Kuz Zach with Cage, and the movie would have been more engaging. Peter England, here's another one. Although Michael Gazzo as Frankie uh, Pentaliangi in Godfather 2 is great, it should have been Richard S. Castellino as his character Clemenza, which would have made much more sense with Vito Corleone, backstory sequences, and also the original movie. Then the story would have been even more perfect than it already is. Jay Wall, The Silence of the Lamb with Holly Hunter and Sam Neill. That would be very cool. Um, so this week's question is, what is your favorite, you know, genre release? Not like movie or horror. What is the label? Like an old Blu-ray or DVD or box set? What's your favorite so far this year? Box set, Blu-ray, DVD, um, whatever it is, 4K. What is it? Let, let's do that. Now let's hop into that update. Okay, let's hop into this update. First up, we got a couple kinos. Uh, Matahara. Um, so Sylvia Crystal's in this. I've seen a handful of her films. This just looked really wild. Infamous in her time, a legend in ours. This just seemed very bizarre and strange. You know, I did the uh, buy two, get one on Target, and this is one of them. Um, I had a pre-order on it. finally came. Uh, directed by Curtis Harrington. That's worth noting. Curtis Harrington, you know, did a bunch of, you know, kind of horror and thrillers of a certain time, and I liked his work, so I picked that one up. That's another reason for it. Um, next up, we have Mysterious Island of Beautiful Women. I uh, didn't know too much about this one. Looked like it was up my alley. You know, a Kino title here. Um, looks kind of like, you know, kind of the, the uh, exploitation style film for sure. Looks cool. Picked it up again. At bar, at Target buy two, get one. And then the last one here is Coming Apart um, with Rip Thorne, Sally Kirkland. I had heard about this one, I think, on the Pure Cinema podcast. Heard it's quite good. Um, this is a Kino title. Again, buy two, get one from Target a while ago. Uh, yeah, this one just sounds like a really dark drama, really well done. So, cool. Now we're going to hop into the Vinegar Syndrome stuff. And first up, we'll just do this. Um, well, let's do this. This is a 4K. Is there any 4Ks in here? And I can't remember sometimes. I think this is a 4K. Yeah. Crazy that we have the incredible Melting Man in 4K. The first new horror creature. Yeah, this one is a pretty wild movie. It's been a long time since I've watched it. It'll be crazy to see this movie in 4K, see all those gooey effects, right? Essentially, this movie, uh, Astronaut Goes to Space, he comes back, um, a.k.a. Saturn 3, isn't it, or something like that? And he, he's melting the entire time, and he's like crazy and starts killing everybody, you know? Classic film. I mean, what, 76, I think, around that time? 
Then we have um, Forgotten Jolly Volume 5. Very cool here. Um, awesome. Love these sets. Got a white dress uh, for Marielle, Tropic of Cancer, and Nine Guests for a Crime. Mary, uh, how, how do you say that word? I know the word, but yeah, this is pretty cool. Tropic of Cancer right there. And let's get these movies out of here. I like how they do these packaging for sure. Um, there we go. Yeah, Vinegar Syndrome does such a good job on this stuff. That cover is very memorable, you know. I remember that cover. I don't know if I've seen any of these, to be honest. But look forward to checking them out, you know. Um, I do do a podcast of the um, Forgotten Gialli over at the podcast Under the Stairs. We did a bunch of them already. We did the first three volumes. We're going to tackle four and five when we get a chance. What else do we have here? Some more Vinegar Syndrome. Yeah, classic that we watched for 1994. The Birds 2, Lane's End. Not an absolute horrible movie or anything like that. It's fairly decent. Um, better than one would expect. Pretty pretty cool carnage at the very end of the movie. You know, it's Birds 2. It's exactly what you think it is. You know, a decent sequel to a classic film, right? What else do we have here? Okay. We have Guns and Guts by Rene Cardona Jr. Actually, uh, Harry Collins mentioned Guns and Guts on his uh, gory uh, westerns on the Secret Top Ten, so that's very cool. And we have Hot Snake, uh, another kind of Spanish. These are two, I believe, Spanish um, westerns here. Awesome to check these out for sure. i got to watch Guns and Guts when I get a chance. So, very cool. Region free on that. So, awesome. Love seeing Vinegar Syndrome do a lot of different things like that. And then we have the VSA title, Unmasking the Idol. Um, this looks like a wild film. Don't know much about it. And I've been buying all the VSAs. So, looks like a, oh, if I can pull it out of here, this one's in there tight. So, yeah, I don't know too much about it. Like, it, you start buying a line, and then before you know it, you're just buying a lot of stuff. And you're like, I don't know if I should be buying all these anymore. But, you know, VSA is a lot, a lot of cool stuff. And, and if you're worried about stuff going out of print, VSA is the one that always, always goes out of print. And then we have an EGFA here. The Films of Doris Wishman, The Moonlight Years. Got a bunch of movies here. All these here. Bad Girls Go to Hell, Indecent Desires, Another Day, Another Man, My Brother's Wife, A Taste of Flesh, The Sex Perils of Paulette, Too Much of Ten, The Hot Month of August, Passion Fever. So, yeah, nice. Three-disc set. Nice. Uh, slip cover and a box cover. I mean, this thing's going all out. It's got everything. So, if you're a fan of Doris Wishman, then definitely going to pick those up. Then we have uh, Culture Shock here. We have Dead North. Uh, Saturn's Core, not Culture Shock. Sorry, I mixed that up. Uh, yeah, Dead North. This has got to be a Gary Whitson produced one, a Wave production here for sure. Looks like kind of tie-up fetish horror movie deal. <laughs> These are kind of really strange uh, movies. Sometimes they're, they're all right. Other times you're like, I don't know. Uh, so, so I'll definitely give this one a spin. Uh, what year was this one? Uh Jeez, I'm trying to think. It does kind of matter to me sometimes on these early SOVs. It's probably mid-90s or something. 1991. Okay, okay. It's pretty early. So cool. And then what do we have next? This is the Culture Shock. Streets of Death. I remember this cover art. The uh, Not that one, but the uh, there's some nudity there, I guess. This looks sleazy and fun. This one right here. Love that cover art. So I'm digging what Culture Shock's doing. You know, they're putting out a lot of wild, weird titles. Lots of cool shit. 
definitely one of my favorite sub labels. Um, that them and, and Saturn's Core, and uh, you know, a lot of these Fun City movies like look excellent. I need to watch a lot of them, but they're movies that I've always wanted to pick up. Here we go, Natural Enemies, Hall Holbrook, Louise Fletcher, very cool. This one sounds like an excellent movie. I, I had heard a little bit about it probably from the Pure Cinema podcast, and this just sounds like a very depressing, really messed up dark drama. So, yeah, Hall Holbrook's an excellent actor. Gotta love Hall Holbrook, and I think this movie's going to be a, a tremendous performance here. So. I think that's all of them, and uh, I guess we're going to hop back to the video. All right, guys, thank you very much for watching, and as always, have a good one. Yeah.